0: and I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Isaiah this morning. Isaiah. Nearly in the middle of your Bible. Page 966 if you're using a house Bible. Isaiah. What a book! It was from the scroll of Isaiah that our Lord first read in the synagogue in Nazareth. It was at least part of a scroll of Isaiah that the Ethiopian official was reading from when he was spoken to by Philip and told about the Christ. It is the book of Isaiah that fills the entire New Testament with glory, The book of Matthew, by one count, alludes or quotes from the book of Isaiah nine times. Mark and Luke each quote from Isaiah six times. John quotes it four times. The book of Acts five times. And and Romans, 19 times. That's not to mention all of the rest of the books of the New Testament, which totaling all together quote or allude to the book of Isaiah some 85 times. New Testament writers, in fact, refer to Isaiah more than twice as many as they do to any of the other prophets. In fact, after the Psalms, Isaiah is the second most quoted book by the New Testament authors. And because of its rich soteriological themes, dealing with the doctrine of salvation, The book of Isaiah has been called the Gospel of the Old Testament or the Fifth Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah. Or the Old Testament Romans. This book encompasses every major theological theme of the Gospel, which is the central message of Christianity. So this morning, I want to begin... Um, a wonderful journey of discovery of this profound book. And I have been looking forward to this for some time, praying about this, reading through this book, having my soul strengthened by it, and I just uh, pray that God will pour out His blessing upon us, exalting Himself, exalting His Son, and drawing us in, granting us repentance and faith by the means of this piece of Holy Scripture. So this morning, we'll get through one verse. Now at that rate, well, never mind, we'll go faster later. But I want to just introduce it to you by looking at the first verse of the first chapter. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So I just want to introduce you to this book by way of just taking this first verse and taking notice of the different pieces of information that it gives us. And the first is the author. We're told the author is Isaiah, the son of Amos. And we don't know a whole lot about the prophet Isaiah. He ministered obviously in and around Jerusalem during, sometime during the last sort of half of the kingdom era of Judah. Jewish tradition actually says that his father Amos was related to King Amaziah of Judah. And if that's the case, if that was the case, then Isaiah was part of the extended royal family. Um, in any case, he clearly had access to the throne, to the to the royal throne to the king, and uh gave many um prophecies in that regard. Uh we know that Isaiah was married, he had children. We find from the book of Isaiah here. And uh in fact, like Hosea his own family would become a part of his prophetic ministry. And we'll see that as we go along. Clearly, he was a divinely inspired prophet such that his writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to us as the very Word of God. And uh, so here we have it, this book, and in the providence of God we're though we don't know a whole lot about the messenger we are given to focus on this amazing message that really is a cornerstone of our faith now if you go to wikipedia that endless source of all human knowledge you will find you will find under the entry for book of isaiah Um, Under the section called structure, you will find this, that the, quote, general scholarly consensus has proposed that the book of Isaiah was written by not Isaiah. (laughs) Surprise, surprise, right? Well, not just Isaiah, maybe Isaiah and then another author or even a couple of other authors. In fact, they break it down this way. Chapters 1 through 39 is the actual book of Isaiah, that Isaiah, the Prophet wrote then chapters forty on or or sometimes it's split up into two is written sometimes it's called deutero Isaiah, or they even split up into a third one and call it Trito Isaiah, written by a second author that was after the exile, if you remember the the history, the exile of the people of Judah of, of, of Judah, um, and then a third author perhaps or a collection of authors that just kind of put everything together sometime much later under Isaiah's name. <laughs> Interestingly, right on that Wikipedia webpage, if you go over to the right of where it says all of that, you'll see a picture of the famous Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in the 1940s. And this scroll dates from 150 years before Christ so you know, earlier by far than any other um, copies of Isaiah we'd ever had, and interestingly, um, in in that that scroll, it, it's made up of 17 sheets of of parchment, all stitched together, and at least originally they were stitched together and um, and, and and made up of columns on each of those pages, totaling 54 columns of text. Well, on one. Particular sheet of that scroll, the first words of chapter 40, which is supposed to be second Isaiah, that was, you know, that wasn't really part of the original book. The first words of chapter 40 fall in the same column on the same page as the last lines of chapter 39, almost as if it just keeps on going, all from one source. The truth is, there is literally no manuscript evidence whatsoever for the division of this book, that it was once, you know, one book and then somebody added another book to it or anything like that. It literally is a theory that's just made up of thin air. Now, in the past, critical scholars pointed to differences in style, and there are some differences in Uh, in in the way that chapters 1 to 39 read and chapters 40 and onward. And there are good reasons for that. But they pointed to some of those differences in style as evidence that there were at least two different authors. There's no way one person could have written this. But the really the primary motive driving this critical theory is that Isaiah, frankly, makes such astounding, jaw-dropping predictions of what would happen in the future, namely the exile of Israel and particularly the return of Israel, even naming the Persian Cyrus the Great as a key instrument in the return of God's people. Now, that is just um, that's just inadmissible from the outset for those who are skeptical that, and disbelieving that the Bible is in fact the Word of God. They say this couldn't have been written by that eighth century prophet. It must have been written many years afterward. And it just shows that many worldly, so-called biblical scholars don't believe in the very God described by Isaiah who said in Isaiah 46, verse 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all My purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of counsel, of My counsel from a far country, the Lord says, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's the God that we believe in. Amen? And oh, how blind these so-called wise men are who just cannot see the God who speaks the end from the beginning. Interestingly, today, the fashion of ascribing two or three different authors based on the differences in style is, uh, is actually being abandoned by even those scholars. Papers have been written showing uh, the abundance of similarities between the different parts of Isaiah. One example is the, uh, the way Isaiah constantly uses this term for God, the Holy One of Israel. He uses it like 25 times, which and it's kind of peculiar to Isaiah. The rest of the entire Old Testament uses it only six times. Isaiah uses it 25 times. Now, you not want to know where it's found in Isaiah? 13 times or 12 times in the first half, 13 times in the second half. So the 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 book itself is telling us that its entirety is authored by Isaiah, the eighth century prophet. And that is also, of course, the testimony of the New Testament writers. The New Testament refers to passages throughout the book as, quote, the prophecy of Isaiah. Particularly interesting to me was John chapter 12, which after quoting from Isaiah 53, which would be in the second half of Isaiah, and from Isaiah 6 in the first half, after quoting from parts of the second and the first half, John wrote this in John 12.41, Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's glory and spoke of Him. Ascribing both parts to Isaiah. Friends, accepting that God can declare the, from ancient times the things not yet done, frankly, is at the very heart of receiving the message of this book. The great testimony of the book of Isaiah is that God is sovereign over all of human history. He's the author of human history. The things that you see around you, the things that you see happening around you right now are not happening by chance, but they have been ordained by the God who ordains all of human history. God has planned every one of those events far ahead, and just as as surely as Israel went into captivity and the Persian king Cyrus gave the order to return home. So everything, including your future and the future of this entire world, is bound to come to pass exactly as the Lord has said. And that is part of the the attitude that we have to have if we will receive, really, the message of the prophet Isaiah, God's true people live by what? We live by faith, right? And what is faith? It's the substance of things hoped for, not yet come. We live by faith that everything that God has said, it will surely come to pass. Brothers and sisters, rest your your whole future on that. Every other prediction that you might rest in is just as certain as the weather forecast. right? It's someone's best guess. But there is a certainty to resting your life on the very Word of God. And that's what God's people have always had to do. That's what we have to do. So we, we read about the author here. Secondly, we find in this text uh, the subject of his vision. This was a vision, he says, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem, holy city. That place of all of the places of the world where God chose to put His name. That place where the temple was ordained to be built. Where God's presence would be with His people. Jerusalem would become the seat of Israel's king the home of its high priest, and now the center of ministry of its faithful prophet. It was the place of God's people, at least those who were ostensibly God's people. Now, when you get into the book, as we will especially get into chapters 13 and following, we'll find that it speaks to a lot more than just Judah and Jerusalem. In fact, the prophet speaks oracles against Assyria and Babylon and Moab and Syria and Cush and Egypt and Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean coast. He speaks to all of the surrounding countries. In fact, this message is a message for the world, to be honest. But when a secular historian approaches all of the history of the world, and he has to be selective, of course, like any historian, about what he writes about, he's going to pick what? the big, great, powerful nations and leaders, the epic battles that take place. What is this vision about? A little no-name sort of third-rate country in the middle of these great powers, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, right? Here's this small little people, a people who are nothing, and yet this is what God's vision is said to be about. Of course, it's about all of these other countries, but it's about the people of God. And the whole point of that is this, that God's purpose in all of human history, in all of the world, and among all of the nations, is to work out everything for the glory of His Son and the good of His Son's people. That is literally... That's your philosophy of history, okay? That's where history is going. God is working... Among all of the nations of the world, in order to bring about the glory of His people, His true people who look to Him with faith, His people who are now called out of every tribe and nation and language on the face of the earth. This is God's plan. This is the subject of this vision. And then, thirdly, we have in this verse the setting of the vision. And uh, we find recorded that this vision is given in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and the king; those all who are kings of Judah. So that gives us a little bit of a historical time frame of Isaiah's ministry. Um, Uzziah, the king, died around 740 B.C. And that was, we find in chapter 6, that's when Isaiah's ministry began with the death of Uzziah. And it went on through the ministry through the reign of King Hezekiah and his interactions with uh, Sennacherib, who besieged the city of Jerusalem. That um, leader died in 681 BC. So, in other words, Isaiah's ministry then is pretty long. It spans about 60 years over the course of these three, four kings of Judah, three of whom were were good, but one. Was bad, and and this is a, a period of time in Israel's history that's characterized by a slow uh, but steady decline spiritually, morally. Their country was not what it once was. It, this is not the days of David and Solomon. Um, it's also a period of increasingly international. Unrest and upheaval by the great powers of that day, and Israel, Judah is stuck down there in the middle, and eventually god's people would end up as captives, you know um, in a foreign land, so this was a very difficult time, a very sad time if you were one of god's true people to see the decline and to see the unrest and to, eventually see your people go into captivity. But in the midst of all of that, God tells Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, speak comfort to my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And all of that to speak to all of the people of God throughout all of the ages that we would be able in the darkest of times to have hope that we would be able to know that God has promises for us and plans for us and care for us even when things look darkest. No matter what happens in this country of ours or in any of the nations around this globe, the Lord has comfort for His people. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Amen? There is comfort in our dear Redeemer King, even in times of darkness. And then I want to end this morning with, and and the end is not the end. You know, the end is the, this is the beginning of the end. Didn't want you to get too too uh, uh, set for something that would disappoint you. But uh, the end, I want to end with. Uh, the sweeping gospel themes of this book and just introduce you to some of the themes that just come up again and again that really just speak uh, to the glory of the gospel. Uh, This book, as I said, could be called the Gospel of Isaiah for it just as surely shows us Christ and His redemption as any of the gospels. What does it show us? Well, in the first place, it shows us the vivid uh, display of the holiness of God. We see the holiness of God in the book of Isaiah. In fact, sometimes Isaiah has been called the prophet of holiness. He uses the term holy or holiness 58 times in this book. He refers, as I said earlier, 25 times to the Lord as the Holy One of Israel, that's the one who sits on the throne of heaven, the Holy One. And probably no passage in the book pictures more vividly the Holy One of Israel than Isaiah's great vision of God in chapter 6 that we read earlier. In that vision, Isaiah sees the Lord Yahweh. He sees the Lord Christ on a throne. In a temple on a throne, interestingly enough in the temple, on a throne. And I just want to remind you, friends, listen, there are so many ideas that people have in their minds when when you talk to them about God. Someone once said that the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. There are people who think of God as just kind of a heavenly grandfather, doting, a little senile, he just kind of looks down lovingly upon everything that's happening. Sometimes he gets a little grumpy, but overall he just kind of, you know, minds his own business and, you know, gives nice treats at certain times. But the vision of God portrayed in the Scripture, I want to tell you the grandest vision, the most pervasive vision of God throughout the entirety of the Scripture is the one that Isaiah sees here, which is an omnipotent being upon a throne, and all of humanity down at his feet. In fact, all of creation under his footstool. This is the God of the scripture. He is a king, and king, we, we, we use the, that term in Isles God's our king, king of kings, uh, and it's so, and yet it's so foreign to us because we, we have so little, um, conception of kings in, in everyday life, right? Nothing even really close to a king. Uh, someone who has absolute all power. Someone who's, in in one sense, a despot, an absolute ruler. He does whatever he wills. Whatever he speaks, it's done. I mean, it happens. Your fate rests entirely in his hands. That's the idea here of a king upon his throne. high and lifted up. In the ancient Near East, the thrones were exalted. They were lifted literally physically higher than all of the people. And the people would keep their eyes down. This king, was un, uh, you were unworthy even to lift your eyes to look at the king. And the, the, the God of heaven, friends, is so holy that He dwells in light, inapproachable. He is the great high king lifted up on the throne of heaven. He wears robes in this vision, royal robes that are so massive that the train of that robe fills the entire uh, square mile of the temple complex. I mean, he this is majesty embodied. He, the, he is surrounded by a cloud of smoke that obscures... The view of the Holy One from sinful creatures and he is shrouded in mystery and, and perfection and, and holiness and human beings are at his feet and this thick smoke obscures him. His presence is awesome and terrifying and surrounding him on his throne in the In the royal palace are all of His royal guards. These are mighty, angelic creatures able to destroy you in a moment. I mean, one single one of these creatures laid waste to 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. And surrounding this throne are myriads of hosts at his beck and call to do his will and carry it out in this world. No wonder the Bible says that the enemies will call upon, uh, the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. And, and as Isaiah sees this vision, the, the angels speak and they speak this word, holy. Holy is the Lord. And when they speak that word, the mountain shakes, the, the foundations of the temple itself quake under the apostles' feet. And you just, you, you, if you are the enemy of that king, you just wish that you could die rather than face his wrath. They cry out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And like the holy place, the holiness of God is cubed, as it were, holy by holy by holy, holy in every dimension, holy times holy times holy, holy Father, holy Son, Holy Spirit. He is perfect and pure and powerful and does whatever He pleases in heaven and on earth. That is the Holy One. And in that same context, in Isaiah 6, we see the second great soteriological theme that is expounded for us in Scripture, and that is the sinfulness of man. Isaiah, the prophet of that God, is unable even to face his Maker, and he cries out, in chapter 6, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. Woe is me, for my eyes have seen Yahweh. My eyes have seen the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And He did indeed dwell in the midst of an unclean people. And so much of this book, we'll see, is given over to God's indictment of the sinfulness of humanity, the sinfulness of His own people, the people of Israel, the sinfulness of the nations around them. Probably half or more of these 66 chapters are given over to condemnation and threats and judgment for the sinfulness of humanity. If you just look at verse 2 in your text, and just a few verses here will get a taste of it, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And that is exactly the way you and I are by nature. right? Estranged from God. Separated from God. All of sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have rebelled against our Maker. And we stand like the people in Isaiah's vision. We stand in eminent danger by nature of uh, the wrath and the judgment of that One who sits on the throne, who speaks a word and it is done. We are sinful creatures. But Isaiah is also a book of hope. And that hope, as you well know, is centered on the Christ. And the Christ is called in the book of Isaiah the servant of the Lord, the servant of Jehovah. That servant, God's servant, is obedient and lays down His life as a sacrifice. So we see thirdly, the obedience and sacrifice of Christ, the servant of the Lord. And I'll give you just a a quick preview of where we'll get to eventually. In chapter 41... In the chapters that follow, the Lord Jesus is called God's chosen servant. In chapter 49, He is the saving servant, come to deliver His people from the wrath of God. In chapter 50, He is the submissive servant, by which I mean that He perfectly obeys the Father's will, the will of God. In fact, chapter 50, verse 4, the servant of the Lord says this, Morning by morning He awakes. He awakes my ear, speaking of God, He awakes my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not what? I was not rebelled. Amen. The whole world is waiting for somebody like that. A person who could stand in our place as one who was submissive to God. For there are countless ways that you and I have been rebellious against our Maker. But here is one who says, I was never rebellious. I was perfectly submitted to the will of God. He was the submissive servant. And in chapter 53, you're familiar with that one. He was the suffering servant who suffered the wrath and the curse of God on behalf of His people. Isaiah 53, verse 4, so familiar. Surely He has borne what? The iniquity of us all, friends, that's the Gospel. That God has laid on His Son, His servant, the iniquity and the sin of all of God's people. Brothers, friends, look to the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant under the curse of God, the servant who suffered for the sins of the world. That's where you should be. That's where you and I should be. Here's the one who said, I will take their place. Look to Him with faith and trust and hope with commitment. But will that servant actually be able to accomplish salvation? Because there are many leaders who make great promises and have great intentions. If we give them the benefit of the, da- of the doubt, they have great intentions, but they find that they're not able to follow through on their promises. So what about the servant of the Lord? Well, the second half of Isaiah, we find that he's not only the suffering servant, but he's the successful servant. He accomplishes what God gives him to accomplish. Verse fifty, uh, Chapter 53, verse 10, the end of the verse, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, He will see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, the Lord says, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Friends, he is the successful servant of Jehovah. Christ will have the prize for which he died. Amen? What a blessing it is that he was successful in doing that. And then finally, or fourthly, uh, Isaiah emphasizes the global reach of the gospel. Throughout this book, you get the idea that God's people, uh, the people of Israel, somehow foreshadow a much greater expanse of God's people. And we see in, for example, chapter 42, verse 6, that the Lord says to His servant, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, and I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the what? For the nations, a light to the Gentiles. In chapter 49, verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In chapter 52, verse 10, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What a gracious God! And then chapter 60, verse 3, the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Friends, God is saving, even today, people from every tribe and nation and language on the face of the earth. The Gospel is having this effect that the kingdom of Christ is growing and expanding and filling the entire earth. What? a blessing, and we find that theme over and over again in Isaiah. And then finally, we see that Isaiah describes the ultimate victory of the Christ. The consummation of all of His saving work. Every one of Christ's enemies will in the end be utterly defeated and the kingdom will be restored. God's great kingdom that He promised through all of the prophets will in fact find its fulfillment in Christ. This book, you noticed probably, began with the heavens and the earth. God calls the heavens and the earth to bear witness of the sins of His people. All of creation is groaning together in the pains uh, of the curse. But in the end of this book, there is a new heavens and a new earth. The book opens with an indictment of Judah and Jerusalem, and it ends with the promise of a new Jerusalem. And this is really the grand sweep of the Gospel in this book. God's holiness, man's sinfulness, the perfect sacrifice of Christ, the global growth of His kingdom until eventually subduing all things under His feet. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Friends, Isaiah tells us what's coming. And not just for Judah's immediate future, but for the history of this world. Are you a part of Christ's kingdom? Or do you stand condemned before the Almighty, the Holy One of Israel? Hear the word of the Lord today, brothers, friends, sisters. Turn to me, the Lord says, and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Let's bow in prayer. O great God, we acknowledge that You are the Sovereign, the Holy One, the righteous King of all the universe, and that we are sinful. Our hope, our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that one who stood in our place. We know that his name carries great weight before you. And so we pray in Jesus' name for you to receive us. We pray that in this book you would strengthen our understanding of your work and your ways and your gospel, and that you would by this call men to yourself, women and children, that you would cause this word to have its good effect in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.